Section 37 of The Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Plain Speaker. Opinions on Books, Men, and Things by William Hazlitt. Section 37. On Old English Writers and Speakers. Part 1. When I see a whole row of standard French authors piled up on a Paris bookstore, to the height of twenty or thirty volumes, showing their mealy coats to the sun, pink, blue, and yellow, they seem to me a wall built up to keep out the intrusion of foreign letters. There is scarcely such a thing as an English book to be met with, unless perhaps a dusty edition of Clarissa Harlowe lurks in an obscure corner, or a volume of The Sentimental Journey perks its well-known title in your face. But there is a huge column of Voltaire's works, complete in sixty volumes, another, not so frequent, of Rousseau's in fifty, Racine in ten volumes, Moliere in about the same number, La Fontaine, Marmontel, Gibla for ever, Madame Sévigné's letters, Pascal, Montesquieu, Crébillon, Marivaux, with Montaigne, Rabelais, and the Grand Cornet, more rare, and eighteen full-sized volumes of Larp's Criticism, towering vain-gloriously in the midst of them, furnishing the streets of Paris, with a graduated scale of merit for all the rest, and teaching the very garçon perruquier how to measure the length of each act of each play by a stopwatch, and to ascertain whether the angles at the four corners of each classic volume are right ones. How climb over this lofty pile of taste and elegance, to wander down into the bogs and wastes of English, or of any other literature, to this obscure and wild? Must they, on that fair mountain, leave to feed, to batten on this moor? Or why should they? Have they not literature enough of their own, and to spare, without coming to us? Is not the public mind crammed, choked, with French books, pictures, statues, plays, operas, newspapers, parties, and an incessant farrago of words, so that it has not a moment left to look at home into itself, or abroad into nature? Must they cross the channel to increase the vast stock of impertinence, to acquire foreign tastes, suppress native prejudices, and reconcile the opinions of the Edinburgh and Quarterly Reviews, it is quite needless. There is a project at present entertained in certain circles to give the French a taste for Shakespeare. They should really begin with the English. Many of their own best authors are neglected. Others, of whom new editions have been printed, 
lie heavy on the bookseller's hands. It is by an especial dispensation of providence that languages wear out, as otherwise we should be buried alive under a load of books and knowledge. People talk of a philosophical and universal language. We have enough to do to understand our own, and to read a thousandth part, perhaps not the best, of what is written in it. It is ridiculous and a monstrous vanity. We would set up a standard of general taste and of immortal renown. We would have the benefits of science and of art universal. Because we suppose our own capacity to receive them unbounded, and we would have the thoughts of others never die, because we flatter ourselves that our own will last for ever. And like the frog imitating the ox in the fable, we burst in the vain attempt. Man, whatever he may think, is a very limited being. The world is a narrow circle drawn about him. The horizon limits our immediate view. Immortality means a century or two, Languages happily restrict the mind to what is of its own native growth and fitted for it, as rivers and mountains bound countries. Or the empire of learning, as well as states, would become unwieldy and overgrown. A little importation from foreign markets may be good, but the home production is the chief thing to be looked to. The proper study of the French is French. No people can act more uniformly upon a conviction of this maxim, and in that respect I think they are much to be commended. Mr. Lamb has lately taken it into his head to read St. Evremont and works of that stamp. I neither praise nor blame him for it. He observed that St. Evremont was a writer halfway between Montaigne and Voltaire, with the spice of the wit of the one, and the sense of the other. I said I was always of opinion that there had been a great many clever people in the world, both in France and England, but I had been sometimes rebuked for it. Lamb took this as a slight reproach, for he has been a little exclusive and national in his tastes. He said that Coleridge had lately given up all his opinions respecting German literature, that all their high-flown pretensions were in his present estimate sheer cant and affectation, and that none of their works were worth anything but Schiller's and the early ones of Goethe. What, I said, my old friend Werther? How many battles have I had in my own mind, and compunctious visitings of criticism, to stick to my old favourite, because Coleridge thought nothing of it. It is hard to find oneself right at last. I found they were of my mind with respect to the celebrated Faust, that it is a mere piece of abortive perverseness, a wilful evasion of the subject and omission of the characters, that it is written on the absurd principle that as to produce a popular and powerful effect is not a proof of the highest genius, so to produce no effect at all is an evidence of the highest poetry. And, in fine, 
that the German play is not to be named in a day with Marlowe's. Poor Kit! How Lord Byron would have sneered at this comparison between the boasted modern and a contemporary of Shakespeare's. Captain Medwin, or his lordship, must have made a mistake in the enumeration of plays of that period still acted. There is one of Ben Jonson's, every man in his humour, and one of Massinger's, a new way to pay old debts. But there is none of Ford's either acted or worth acting, except tis pity she's a whore, and that would no more bear acting than Lord Byron and Goethe together could have written it. This account of Coleridge's vacillations of opinion on such subjects might be adduced to show that our love for foreign literature is an acquired, or rather an assumed taste, that it is, like a foreign religion, adopted for the moment, to answer a purpose or to please an idle humour, that we do not enter into the dialect of truth and nature in their works, as we do in our own, and that consequently our taste for them seldom becomes a part of ourselves, that grows with our growth and strengthens with our strength, and only quits us when we die. Probably it is this acquaintance with, and pretended admiration of, extraneous models, that adulterates and spoils our native literature, that polishes the surface, but undermines its basis, and by taking away its original simplicity, character, and force, makes it just tolerable to others, and a matter of much indifference to ourselves. When I see Lord Byron's poems stuck all over Paris, it strikes me as ominous of the decline of English genius. On the contrary, when I find the Scotch novels in still greater request, I think it augurs well for the improvement of French taste. There was advertised not long ago in Paris an elegy on the death of Lord Byron by his friend Sir Thomas More, evidently confounding the living bard with the old statesman. It is thus the French, in their light, salient way, transpose everything. The mistake is particularly ludicrous to those who have ever seen Mr. Moore, or Mr. She's portrait of him in Mr. Hookham's shop, and who chanced to see Holbein's head of Sir Thomas More in the Louvre. There is the same difference that there is between a surly English mastiff and a little lively French pug. Mr. Moore's face is gay and smiling enough. Old Sir Thomas's is severe, not to say sour. It seems twisted awry with difficult questions, and bursting asunder with a ponderous load of meaning. Mr. Moore has nothing of this painful and puritanical cast. He floats idly and fantastically on the top of the literature of his age. His renowned and almost forgotten namesake has nearly sunk to the bottom of his. The author of Utopia was no flincher. He was a martyr to his opinions and was burned to death for them. The most heroic action of Mr. Moore's life is the having burnt the memoirs of his friend. 
The expression in Holbein's pictures conveys a faithful but not very favourable notion of the literary character of that period. It is painful, dry, and laboured. Learning was then an ascetic, but recluse, and profound. You see a weight of thought and care in the studious heads of the time of the Reformation, a sincerity, an integrity, a sanctity of purpose, like that of a formal dedication to a religious life, or the inviolability of monastic vows. They had their work to do. We reap the benefits of it. We skim the surface and travel along the high road. They had to explore dark recesses, to dig through mountains, and make their way through pathless wildernesses. It is no wonder they looked grave upon it. The seriousness, indeed, amounts to an air of devotion, and it has to me something fine, manly, and old English about it. There is a heartiness and determined resolution, a willingness to contend with opposition, a superiority to ease and pleasure, some sullen pride, but no trifling vanity. They addressed themselves to study as to a duty, and were ready to leave all and follow it. In the beginning of such an era, the difference between ignorance and learning, between what was commonly known and what was possible to be known, would appear immense, and no pains or time would be thought too great to master the difficulty. Conscious of their own deficiencies and the scanty information of those about them, they would be glad to look out for aids and support, and to put themselves apprentices to time and nature. This temper would lead them to exaggerate, rather than to make light, of the difficulties of their undertaking, and would call forth sacrifices in proportion. Feeling how little they knew, they would be anxious to discover all that others had known, and instead of making a display of themselves, their first object would be to dispel the mist and darkness that surrounded them. They did not cull the flowers of learning, or pluck a leaf of laurel for their own heads, but tugged at the roots and very heart of their subject, as the woodman tugs at the roots of the gnarled oak. The sense of the arduousness of their enterprise braced their courage, so that they left nothing half done. They inquired de omne shibile et quibustam alias. They ransacked libraries. They exhausted authorities. They acquired languages, consulted books, and deciphered manuscripts. They devoured learning and swallowed antiquity whole, and, what is more, digested it. They read incessantly, and remembered what they read, from the zealous interest they took in it. Repletion is only bad when it is accompanied with apathy and want of exercise. They laboured hard and showed great activity, both of reasoning and speculation. Their fault was that they were too prone to unlock the secrets of nature with the key of learning, and often to substitute authority in the place of argument. They were also too polemical, as was but naturally to be expected in the first breaking up 
of established prejudices and opinions. It is curious to observe the slow progress of the human mind in loosening and getting rid of its trammels link by link, and how it crept on its hands and feet, and with its eyes bent on the ground out of the cave of bigotry, making its way through one dark passage after another. Those who gave up one half of an absurdity, contending as strenuously for the remaining half, the lazy current of tradition stemming the tide of innovation, and making an endless struggle between the two. But in the dullest minds of this period there was a deference to the opinions of their leaders, an imposing sense of the importance of the subject, of the necessity of bringing all the faculties to bear upon it, a weight either of armour or of internal strength, a zeal either for or against, a head, a heart, and a hand, a holding out to the death for conscience' sake, a strong spirit of proselytism, no flippancy, no indifference, no compromising, no pert, shallow scepticism, but truth was supposed indissolubly knit to good, knowledge to usefulness, and the temporal and eternal welfare of mankind to hang in the balance. The pure springs of a lofty faith, so to speak, had not then descended by various gradations from their skyey regions and cloudy height to find their level in the smooth, glittering expanse of modern philosophy, or to settle in the stagnant pool of stale hypocrisy. A learned man of that day, if he knew no better than others, at least knew all that they did. He did not come to his subject like some dapper barrister, who has never looked at his brief, and trusts to the smartness of his wit and person for the agreeable effect he means to produce, but like an old and practised counsellor, covered over with the dust and cobwebs of the law. If it was a speaker in Parliament, he came prepared to handle his subject, armed with cases and precedents, the constitution and history of Parliament from the earliest period, a knowledge of the details of business and the local interests of the country. In short, he had taken up the freedom of the house, and did not treat the question like a cosmopolite, or a writer in a magazine. If it were a divine, he knew the scriptures and the fathers, and the councils and the commentators by heart, and thundered them in the ears of his astonished audience. Not a trim essay or a tumid oration, patronising religion by modern sophisms, but the law and the prophets, the chapter and the verse, if it was a philosopher, Aristotle and the schoolmen were drawn out in battle array against you. If an antiquarian, the Lord bless us. There is a passage in Selden's notes on Drayton's Polyolbion, in which he elucidates some points of topography, by a reference not only to Stowe and Hollinshed and Camden and Saxo Grammaticus and Dugdale, 
and several other authors that we are acquainted with, but to twenty obscure names that no modern reader ever heard of. And so on through the notes to a folio volume, written apparently for relaxation. Such were the intellectual amusements of our ancestors. Learning then ordinarily lay in off folio volumes. Now she litters octavos and duodecimos, and will soon, as in France, miscarry of half-sheets. Poor Job Orton! Why should I not record a jest of his? Perhaps the only one he ever made. Emblematic as it is, of the living and the learning of the good old times. The Reverend Job Orton was a dissenting minister, in the middle of the last century, and had grown heavy and gouty by sitting long at dinner and at his studies. He could only get downstairs at last by spreading the folio volumes of Carroll's commentaries upon Job on the steps and sliding down them. Surprised one day in his descent, he exclaimed, You have often heard of Carroll upon Job. Now you see Job upon Carroll. This same quaint-witted gouty old gentleman seems to have been one of those superior happy spirits who slid through life on the rollers of learning, enjoying the good things of the world and laughing at them, and turning his infirmities to a livelier account than his patriarchal namesake. Reader, didst thou ever hear either of Job Orton, or of Carroll on Job? I dare say not. Yet the one did not therefore slide down his theological staircase the less pleasantly, nor did the other compile his commentaries in vain. For myself, I should like to browse on folios, and have to deal chiefly with authors that I have scarcely strength to lift, that are as solid as they are heavy, and if dull, are full of matter. It is delightful to repose on the wisdom of the ancients, to have some great name at hand, besides one's own initials, always staring one in the face. To travel out of oneself into the Chaldee, Hebrew, and Egyptian characters. To have the palm-trees waving mystically in the margin of the page, and the camels moving slowly on in the distance of three thousand years. In that dry desert of learning we gather strength and patience, and a strange and insatiable thirst of knowledge. The ruined monuments of antiquity are also there, and the fragments of buried cities, under which the adder lurks, and cool springs, and green sunny spots, and the whirlwind and the lion's roar, and the shadow of angelic wings. To those who turn with supercilious disgust from the ponderous tomes of scholastic learning, who never felt the witchery of the Talmuds and the Kabbalah, of the commentators and the schoolmen, of texts and authorities, of types and antitypes, hieroglyphics and mysteries, dogmas and contradictions, and endless controversies and doubtful labyrinths, and quaint traditions, I would recommend the lines of Wharton, written in a blank leaf of Dugdale's Monasticon, Deem not devoid of elegance the sage, by fancy's genuine feelings unbeguiled, of painful pedantry the pouring child, 
who turns of these proud domes the historic page now sunk by time and henry's fiercer rage thinks thou the warbling muses never smiled on his lone hours ingenious views engage his thoughts on themes unclassic falsely styled intent while cloistered piety displays her mouldering scroll the piercing eye explores new manners and the pomp of elder days whence culls the pensive bard his pictured stores nor rough nor barren are the winding ways of hoar antiquity but strewn with flowers this sonnet if it were not for a certain intricacy in the style would be a perfect one at any rate the thought it contains is fine and just some of the caput mortuum of learning is a useful ballast and relief to the mind it must turn back to the acquisitions of others as its natural sustenance and support facts must go hand in hand with feelings or it will soon prey like an empty stomach on itself or be the sport of the windy impertinence of ingenuity self-begotten away then with this idle cant as if everything were barbarous and without interest that is not the growth of our own times and of our own taste with this everlasting evaporation of mere sentiment this affected glitter of style this equivocal generation of thought out of ignorance and vanity this total forgetfulness of the subject and display of the writer as if every possible train of speculation must originate in the pronoun i and the world had nothing to do but to look on and admire it will not do to consider all truth or good as a reflection of our own pampered and inordinate self-love to resolve the solid fabric of the universe into an essence of delacruscan witticism and conceit the perpetual search after effect the premature and effeminate indulgence of nervous sensibility defeats and wears itself out we cannot make an abstraction of the intellectual ore from the material dross of feelings from objects of results from causes we must get at the kernel of pleasure through the dry and hard husk of truth we must wait nature's time these false births weaken the constitution it has been observed that men of science live longer than mere men of letters they exercise their understandings more their sensibility less there is with them less wear and tear of the irritable fibre which is not shattered and worn to a very thread on the hill of science they keep an eye intent on truth and fame calm pleasures there abide majestic pains while the man of letters mingles in the crowd below courting popularity and pleasure his is a frail and feverish existence accordingly and he soon exhausts himself in the tormenting pursuit in the alternate excitement of his imagination and gratification of his vanity earth destroys those raptures duly erebus disdains 
Lord Byron appears to me to have fairly run himself out in his debilitating intercourse with the wanton muse. He had no other idea left but that of himself and the public. He was uneasy unless he was occupied in administering repeated provocatives to idle curiosity and receiving strong doses of praise or censure in return. The irritation at last became so violent and importunate that he could neither keep on with it nor take any repose from it. The glistering orb of heated popularity glared round his soul and mocked his closing eyelids. The successive endless cantos of Don Juan were the quotidian that killed him. Old Sir Walter will last long enough, stuffing his wallet and his wame, as he does, with mouldy fragments and crumbs of comfort. He does not spin his brains, but something much better. The cunning Child, the old canty Gabalunzi, has got hold of another clue, that of nature and history. And long may he spin it, even to the crack of doom. Watching the threads, as they are about to break through his fringed eyelids, catching a tradition in his mouth like a trap, and heaping his forehead with facts, till it shoves up the baronet's blue bonnet into a baron's crown, and then will the old boy turn in his chair, rest his chin upon his crutch, give a last look to the highlands, and with his latest breath thank God that he leaves the world as he found it. And so he will pretty nearly, with one exception, the Scotch novels. They are a small addition to this round world of ours. We and they shall jog on merrily together for a century or two, I hope, till some future Lord Byron asks, Who reads Sir Walter Scott now? There is the last and almost worst of them. I would take it with me into a wilderness. Three pages of poor Peter Peebles, will at any time redeem three volumes of Red Gauntlet. And Nanty Ewart is even better with his steady walk upon the deck of the Jumping Jenny, and his story of himself, and her whose foot, whether he came in or went out, was never off the stair. There you came near me. There you touched me, old True Penny. And then again the cat that blind Willie and his wife, and the boy sing in the hollow of the heath. There's more mirth and heart's ease in it than in all Lord Byron's Don Juan, or in Mr. Moore's lyrics. And why? Because the author is thinking of beggars and a beggar's brat, and not of himself while he writes it. He looks at nature, sees it, hears it, feels it, and believes that it exists, before it is printed, hot-pressed, and labelled on the back by the author of Waverley he does not fancy, nor would he for one moment have it supposed, that his name and fame compose all that is worth a moment's consideration in the universe. This is the great secret of his writings, a perfect indifference to self. Whether it is the same in his politics I cannot say. I see no comparison between his prose writing and Lord Byron's poems. The only writer that I should hesitate about is Wordsworth, there are thoughts and lines of his that to me show as fine a mind, a subtler sense of beauty, than anything of Sir Walter's, such as those above quoted, and that other line in the Laudamia. 
Elysian beauty, melancholy grace. I would as soon have written that line as have carved a Greek statue. But in this opinion I shall have three or four with me, and all the rest of the world against me. I do not dislike a House of Commons minority in matters of taste. That is, one that is select, independent, and has a proxy from posterity. To return to the question with which I set out. End of section 37